Hello everyone. My name is Ruth Marshall and I have the honor of being the president of the International Spinal Cord Society. This is our first episode in 2021 of our Spinal Cord Injury Care, What Really Matters series of podcasts. So welcome to our first episode. I'm going to be your host and we have a very interesting opening session with a PhD student, Sam Brady, who is at Glasgow University undertaking his PhD on the history of the sports wheelchair. Now, this is really interesting to me. And before I introduce Sam to you all and get him to tell us what he's up to and what he's done in the past and how he got interested in the sports wheelchair, my recollection of early wheelchairs are ones that we currently have in our museum in the hospital, which were made of wicker and look incredibly uncomfortable and very much dependent propelled and not designed to be independent. But when I became the director of my spinal injury unit in 1986, we were moving from prescribing stainless steel wheelchairs that were manufactured in South Australia to aluminium framed wheelchairs that we thought were fantastic because they were so lightweight compared to the stainless steel one. There has been enormous progress in the design of wheelchairs, the manufacture of wheelchairs, and we consider those wheelchairs that were aluminium framed and we thought were so light in the late 1980s to be too heavy for our current users to consider using, except for those who are using an old wheelchair down the back in their shed. I'm really excited to hear what Sam has to say. From This is our 60th anniversary year, and so it's really important that we not only look forward, but we also reflect on our history. From that first meeting in 1961 with Professor Sir Ludwig Gutmann as president to 60 years later, ISCOS continues to be a world voice for spinal cord injury care, even during our current pandemic, which has been going on now for almost two years. I'm really proud of our history but I'm also excited for our future and how we will evolve within our practice. As I've mentioned, just in the area of wheelchairs, we've seen so many changes and advancements, not only in the way we do things, but also in terms of the technology. So I'm delighted that Sam has agreed to talk with us today. He has been working in collaboration with the National Paralympic Heritage Trust of the United Kingdom whilst completing his PhD at Glasgow University. 
investigating the social, political and technical history of the sports wheelchair. Sam, it's great to have you on the show today. I'd love you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be studying a PhD in such an esoteric subject. Thanks. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me for this and thank you for the kind of, I think, wonderful introduction there, kind of framing why the history of this technology is so important because I think it's the kind of subject that a lot of people wouldn't think about to study. I know myself, when I started the PhD, it was a revelation of like, oh, this is a thing that you can study and this is an important thing to research and it's still a thing I have to frame to people when I'm telling them about what I'm doing. I need to (laughs) explain to them why this is important. I was doing a history degree in race history. And I was really interested in thinking about these kind of underserved, marginalized history. And it occurred to me that disability history is something that I never really thought about. I did modules in disability studies. I'm dyslexic myself. And so I was always aware of disability, but I never thought about it as like a academic discipline. And I started to look into disability history and I fell in love with it. And I was looking into the intersections of disability and race and all of these things. And the studentship for this project about the history of the sports wheelchair came up. And I found, I, I, I didn't, I, again, I never thought about it as a history that could be done, but I just thought it was the most fascinating topic thinking about this history of technology, this history of sport, and just how, the way all of these aspects intersect with each other. That's how I came to the project, not intending to go down this field, but now I'm here. It's absolutely fascinating. And I think the history of design, especially, who intended uh, it to be designed in this way and who uses it in these ways. And it's, yeah, just really interesting. So it's a, a really interesting intersection then between your interest in history and what you've gleaned in terms of the history of race sports and sports generally and melding that into the changes that have been seen in technology and the reasons why we have particular objects designed in particular ways. So that in itself must make for a very interesting way to look at the issues of sports wheelchair design. So how do you go about researching that issue? Do you mean in the sense of the resources that I'm using or in the... absolutely. The resources, the Mm -hmm. sort of things that you are looking at and how chairs have changed. Well, it can be a difficult thing to study in, in theory because, you know, these are devices which have been altered quite quickly and dramatically over the years, but also they've been altered in, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but they've been modified and adapted primarily by athletes. And that tended to be in, you know, their homes, in their work, personal workshops, garages, that kind of stuff. And so tracking that history it can be quite difficult. And so part of the way that we've gone about it in this research is using oral history interviews. I will hop on Zoom with someone, we'll chat for maybe an hour about their background in the in the industry, with the technology, in the sport. And I can gain some really fascinating insights from that. And I think it's really important for a couple of reasons. I think firstly, it's an effective way to do this type of research is to hear it from the athletes directly. But then also I think there's there's some political importance to that. Because this disability history in general can be quite invisible in traditional archives and in mainstream media, and especially the voices of disabled people aren't necessarily always uh, valued. 
And so to physically actively make that a part of the research and to you, you value their voices over, say, documents and patents and that kind of stuff, I feel preserves a political purpose as well as a, this is a good way to do about the research. But I'm also using patents, magazines, archival resources. So it's a, it's a bit of a mixture to kind of look at this quite broad history that hasn't necessarily been well-researched beforehand. Yeah. And it is interesting, of course, because there is a real difference between the chairs that are, have simply been used as medical chairs for mobilising people and then enabling people to self-mobilise in chairs. and. Mm-hmm the changes in structure and design that we've seen in sports chairs. And, of course, we've got the Paralympics coming up. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of things that have been changed, not just in terms of chairs, but in artificial limbs to make a difference for the user who is competing in specialised sports. So when you reflect on all of that, Can you talk about the changes in the technology that has been led by the users? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a really key part of this history. And so generally, a way that at least I'm thinking about the development, whether this is completely accurate or not, is uh, I'm sure is up to debate, but kind of around the late 1950s, early 1960s, there was an impetus to start developing chairs, users developing chairs themselves, because really the medical industry that was making wheelchairs had kind of stagnated on on design. And I think that's linked to new designs being accepted by the medical establishment and kind of anything that would defy that image of what a wheelchair was wouldn't be accepted by them. And I mean, who else is going to buy a wheelchair than a hospital, right? So uh, they didn't want to damage that market. And so wheelchair users were the ones who started to make a lot of these developments. And, you know, these tended to be quite small things at first. For example, a lot of users would the uh, push handles at the back of a chair because not only did they add weight, which was unnecessary for a lot of people who wanted to be independent, but again, that political aspect of, well, I don't need someone to push me around. I can propel myself so I can get rid of them. Um, and there are other things depending on people's disability. Um, some people didn't need as high, a high backrest, for example, or um, the, the side guards that would be able to uh, rest their arms on. So it would depend on what people's individual um, needs were. And then these developments, especially for sports, started to get uh, more refined because people wanted to push their abilities in the sport and really advance what the sport could be, changing it from a a game that was just played in the rehabilitation centre to like a a proper independent elite level sport. And so you get all these wonderful developments about like changing wheel sizes, making wheelchairs longer, racing, um, all these things. I think probably my favourite one of these I've, these early adaptations that I've come across is uh, adding camber to the wheel. So um, if you see like a modern basketball wheelchair or tennis wheelchair, you'll see that the wheels are really, they, they go out in like a triangle shape. So the, the top is really near the athlete and the bottom is like really spread. And uh, this has a lot of benefits. Even like, more- yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Probably. Yeah. And, you know, th- it has a lot of benefits. It, it gives the chairs more stability and it also is a slightly better pushing angle as well. It's better trying to transfer of energy. And yeah, and the reason this, and this kind of came about was because of the folding mechanism that existed in early chairs. A lot of the, actually kind of similar to some of the earlier chairs you were talking about there about kind of heavy wicker, you know, made of steel. Some of these would be folding chairs. Um, and what users would do would they would um, they, basically the folding frame is like an X, an X shape um, with, yes. a, with a crossing point in the middle. And what users could do is they could remove that crossing point 
and then replace it with like a little metal uh, plate with little holes in it and literally just change the angle that it crossed at. And so suddenly the seat would sink and the wheels would spread out. And suddenly this like really tiny innovation, this little piece of metal added all these, you know, this extra performance, a slightly better pushing angle, more stability. And then later down the line, when users were making their own wheelchair frames from scratch, they could incorporate that from the get-go. And it's, I think it's, again, I think it's really emblematic of the history of this technology where it's these tiny changes that end up having a big impact further down the line and it gets refined upon and, and made into future designs to be a core part of what a sporting chair is. Not only a sporting chair, but also an everyday chair. Yes, exactly. Where the standard chair that was in a hospital was one that was pushed around and didn't have large wheels. Um, but the patients who needed chairs would be given something similar with larger wheels and they were folding. And the folding chairs have many more bits to break and so they didn't last as long. And so part of this change, as I see it, that was started with sports wheelchairs was to create the fixed frame wheelchair that has become a common usage. Yes, exactly. No, I, th- I think the, the fixed frame is is kind of the cornerstone of this idea of the user-led development because it's, you know, a lot of the previous developments are, I'm going to remove this, I'm going to modify this, but it's kind of keeping the same shape and functionality essentially of a medical chair. Again, I'm sure there's other counter examples that would argue that, but I, I think, but then the, the fixed frame um, really challenged that because it was fundamentally from the initial design changing what a wheelchair was meant to be. And as I'm sure you know, the idea was instead of building a wheelchair with this folding mechanism with all these complicated parts was to build a very light, robust, sturdy frame, usually of like aluminium or like a, I think there's a Reynolds tubing that tended to be used and just a little square frame. And they would have a place for these cambered wheels to go in. And, and that would be the frame that these wheelchairs were made of. And it revolutionized these devices partially because of the performance. Um, they were more mobile, they were lighter, they were again, more robust, but also because you know, these had massive implications for everyday and for sporting users. For basketball, they were a lot stronger and you could maneuver yourself around the court a lot better. For everyday wheelchairs, getting around, popping yourself up onto wheel onto curbs or getting around the house or whatever, that is a lot easier to do if your wheelchair isn't this 40 pound steel box. So it's, yeah, it, it revolutionized the way that we think about wheelchairs and the way they looked and yeah, everything. Yeah. So... What have you seen in terms of the changes in design in the last 10 to 15 years? Because even the last 10 to 15 years, there's been changes in componentry and actually even in the metal that is used to create even lighter chairs. And then, of course, there are the wheels as well. So... Mm -hmm. Can you comment on those? Because I think they've also been sports-led and a lot of them, I think, have been, again, designed and redesigned by people who were active sports people in their chairs. Yeah, I think it's interesting to contrast that this earlier period of innovation to, uh, as you say, the last decade or so, because this earlier period of innovation was really about redefining and reinventing what a wheelchair is and creating this idea of a sporting wheel or a sporty wheelchair i guess um an active wheelchair whereas nowadays the idea of say a basketball wheelchair 
or a racing wheelchair a really well-defined you know the the long three wheel that is a defined shape of a racing chair and you don't really get innovations that challenge that that formed shape that stabilized shape but you do get a, a lot of innovations around tweaking different aspects for the athletes around like you know certain measurements or the slight changes to seating position and then as you mentioned material so you know it used to be all aluminium sometimes titanium and now they are really elite level chairs the you know top of the game chairs they're all carbon fiber which is incredibly expensive and very difficult to work with but when it works, it works. Uh, but yeah very light and um i think at least in my research i'm viewing it as kind of separate periods where say that before talking about like the 70s the 80s maybe the early 90s it was a period this really wild innovation where nowadays it's very 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 stable and the extent to which users are involved is something that i'm still trying to figure out in regards to the modern industry because you do get now there are a lot more companies which are say owned by big healthcare conglomerates and it's more about the engineering skills as opposed to the kind of lived experience of using a wheelchair but there still are wheelchair users involved in those companies maybe as like representatives for example so i think it's a little more case by case in the early days of the industry all of a, a, a big majority of the companies were made by athletes made by wheelchair users they were the ones making the chairs and then slowly they started to be bought out by other companies and then acquired by these healthcare corporations so i think that there is a, a shift and kind of piecing together when it happened currently is my challenge yeah no i think that that's very fair um and i think that i mean it's not just the frames it's also the wheels so i remember when the spinergy type wheels just came out and there was a study done by a wheelchair user who also has a phd in canada who basically said that these wheels really didn't make any difference to wheelchair propulsion. The real difference they make is the weight. So if I'm prescribing a ultralight wheelchair, whether it's made from aluminium or titanium or carbon fibre, there is no sense in putting ordinary wheels on. You've got to also prescribe ultralight wheelchair wheels to again reduce the weight of the chair and when we look for instance at the work done by the motivation organization and the wheelchairs that they've designed to be used in less resource settings in third world countries and they were basically mostly the three wheel type wheelchairs that are similar to racing chairs but without the splayed wheels. But then they went on to develop cheap uh, sports wheelchairs um, and have also looked at the cushions, and the cushions make a difference. And the back height makes a difference as well. There are so many individual issues that make a difference to the design, whether we're using wheelchairs for sport or for everyday use. And, of course, the original sports wheelchairs, were well, they were designed for sport. They rapidly became used by everyone. And we called them sports wheelchairs, but they weren't being used for sport. And what I'm interested in your research, and I have to say I'm looking forward to reading your PhD. Now, I don't say that to many people, 
but I am a PhD because I have an interest in history as well as a lot of it, and it sounds fascinating. Oh, thank you very much. Um, what your oral history interviews have the um, participants said about those subtle changes that they've made to their chairs and the importance of the weight of wheels and the weight of the cushion or whatever. Have mm-hmm. they spoken about those as well? Yeah, it's all of a mix. And I think you're right in the, you know, the weight of the wheels, the cushions, all these things, and even things that aren't necessarily related to the chair itself. So the development of gloves for racing, like these are all really important developments that intersect in various ways. And going into what I was saying before a little bit, I think it also relates to the time that people were active and time people were adapting chairs. So I've had some participants who were really active in the kind of, I guess, the earlier types of parts of the industry. And they were very much, again, that earlier stage of we're cutting off bits, we're adding camber in little ways. And then later, uh, more recent athletes are really pushing, like, how can I tweak the aerodynamic aspect of this? Again, with the wheels, how can I you know, develop carbon fiber wheels to reduce this weight? And I think it's, again, it's an interesting thing because as the sport has become more professionalized, those aspects become really important about like, marginal gain, shaving off extra seconds here and there and things like carbon fiber wheels make a massive impact on that purely because of the weight and even like the angles that they're positioned in and that kind of stuff that will all, all make almost different and then they come to see me and complain about their back pain and i tell them that their back rest is too low and they don't want to change it but <laughs> you know eventually when they stop competing they may need to change it um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and of course there are people who have multiple wheelchairs depending on the they play so if they're playing competition wheelchair basketball and social rugby they need different chairs mm-hmm. if they want a chair to go to the beach they need a different yeah, chair different again chair. and it's you know before you were talking about the motivation chairs and i think it's there's an interesting thing about accessibility with these because obviously wheelchairs are expensive devices and you think generally wheelchair um, we disabled people tend to be in you know some of the lowest earners and just economically and it's i think it's this interesting development where suddenly there's these very very expensive devices and they're all specialized for individual purposes like it used to be that you would buy at least from what i know you would buy a court wheelchair and you would use that for basketball you could use that for tennis and you could also use it for everyday life where now like you can't use an everyday chair for sport or vice versa because they're too specialized um you know the the camber on modern basketball chair wouldn't get through the majority of standard door frames you know you can't you can't use that for getting around and it's i think it's interesting economically that it is developed in this way you need to specialize in a sport or, or two and that's it like like the early paralympics most people would do multiple categories and multiple sports so oh in heavyweight chairs as well yes exactly when you see the the films of the early games before they became the paralympics at mm-hmm. mandeville and people were sitting in the same chairs regardless of whether they were doing archery or playing basketball or whatever and of course, when we're rehabilitating people, we don't provide them with multiple different chairs. They learn to play mm-hmm. tennis and basketball and even rugby initially, as well as uh, balloon, volleyball and anything else we can throw at them, all in the same basic chair. But if they want to seriously undertake a sporting pursuit, whether that happens to be table tennis, basketball, tennis, um, rugby, even weight training. They Mm -hmm. need very specific chairs to meet their needs. But when we look at the motivation 
sports wheelchairs. There's they've gone back to the fairly basic chair mm-hmm. that people can do most things in. But I think if they they want to play wheelchair rugby in those chairs, they add some ball <laughs> No, um, I don't think so. <laughs> I think the motivation chairs are an interesting development, and you know other kind of low cost chairs because it implies that there is a desire and a need for sports in low income countries but also that you don't need the, the elite level chairs of the sport to actually engage with it at the lowest levels. Like I know when you think about the technology, you always look at what is the newest thing, but generally most people don't want to become elite athletes. They want to play sport recreationally or in a rehabilitation setting. And I, th- and I, and I think that those, the motivation chairs are an interesting development in that because it's, it, it, it's basically a, hey, look, the market doesn't need to work in this way. It just happens to have evolved, but we're going to choose this new product. And from what I understand, it made a massive impact in terms of suddenly all these other companies had to provide low-cost options because there was a huge demand for it. And it's you can donate by $400 wheelchairs, not $4,000 wheelchairs. You can get a lot of wheelchairs for $4,000 when they only cost. $400 for the sports mm-hmm. chair. So I think it's made a huge difference and it's uh, enabled people in low-income countries to actually undertake Paralympic-level sport, but it's enabled them to do it. And I think that's really important. We want to have an inclusive society, an inclusive world that enables people to reach their full potentials regardless of physical impairments. Yeah, I was just saying, those pathways into the sport, again, thinking about accessibility, that a lot of the way that some of my uh, participants who were active in the early days of sport have spoken about, like, there's been a culture change around sport being part of rehabilitation services. And I don't know if that's the same everywhere. Um, Is that something I need to do more research into? But as far as I as far as I can tell, there has been a bit of a sea change on that. Uh, and suddenly, because of these specialised chairs, and because of the way the sports are now treated as elite level sport in general, it has this inverse effect of like, well, then there's less opportunity to get into the sports, and it, it creates more competitive environment to get into the entry level. And so, I think again, like the technology, as you were saying, there making it a more inclusive space from a global perspective. It makes a massive impact because at the end of the day, again, most people don't want elite level, you know, carbon fiber or whatever chairs. They want something they can place water in. That's exactly right. And I think most rehabilitation centers still include sporting activities mm-hmm. as part of increasing rehabilitation options and teaching people to move. But I've also I've got patients who have moved, for example, from doing um, racing in racing chairs to playing um, table tennis because when you're doing racing, you're only able to do it with yourself. Table tennis, you can play it with your friends. The yeah. same with tennis tennis, you know, is that um, you're allowed to have the ball bounce twice, not once, yeah. before you hit it with your racket. So there are a number of different things and options that the standard chairs enable to happen. And I think at least part of that is because of the development of sports wheelchairs mm-hmm. that necessarily had to be lighter. And even the motivation sports chairs are much, much lighter than the original so-called lightweight aluminium chairs 
that we started seeing in the mid 1980s. I think I think that's interesting as well because I've a number of interviews I had who said I started doing racing because I got annoyed at team sports that I had to rely on other people. And there are we know throughout that there are people who enjoy team sports and there are people who like exercising by themselves and everything in between. And there are people who like being elite sports people by themselves, but recognize as they then have families that they need to be able to do things with their families. And that's, of course, one of the other things we've seen over the last 30 years is that so many more of our patients, our users who have spinal cord injuries and who might have been considered infertile if there were men and too difficult to carry a baby if they were women having families. And I can say, because I know that my patients have told me this, the females, that having an ultralight wheelchair is much easier to manoeuvre than a heavy one when you have a baby sitting on your lap. It's all those sorts of things. The sporting people have driven the changes that we're seeing across the board. And I think that's what your research is also showing. Yeah, I think the the way that the kind of everyday chairs have developed have, is definitely a part of it. And I think especially one thing I'm interested in is the that definition of when did it become ever, just the wheelchair that was used for everything to specific sporting chairs. Like how did that change happen? How did that like change in language and idea happen? And I think, you know, it's interesting that there's a period where there were chairs that were designed specifically with different adjustments that you could make, wheel positions. So you could have the sporting mode and then the everyday mode or, or whatever it was. And I think, and again, I think that's a really interesting indication of like how these chairs are used and that development. So I think in that sense, that's going to be a part of the research. And I think there's some really interesting stuff happening in the in North America, looking at wheelchair propulsion in sports people as well. And I had the pleasure of visiting Professor Mark Boninger's uh, lab in Pittsburgh, where they really look at how athletes are pushing their wheelchairs, a bit like a gate lab, except looking at people in wheelchairs rather than walkers, mm-hmm. and then talking to the athletes about ways they might be able to improve their pushing style, which may enhance their elite sportspersonship. So I think mm-hmm. that, you know, the design goes so far and then other technological advances also come to play. Sam, I think we have to leave it there. And see this, though, and not only as a PhD, but as a really interesting history that will be read not only by people using wheelchairs, but by lots of other people as well. And I'm so delighted to have been able to speak to you about the history of the sports wheelchair and the changes that people who have used wheelchairs over a number of decades have seen and have been involved in orchestrating for themselves which I see as being really exciting. I think uh, there's a lot to be done in this, and I'm hoping that the listeners have 
been able to take in some of the wonderful stuff you've been talking about and when you eventually publish, um, we'll grab your literature <laughs> because it's an area that hasn't been studied and it's really important and it's important in terms of technological design as well as bioengineering, medical engineering, rehabilitation engineering and lived experience of people who have spinal cord injuries. So thank you, Sam Brady. Thank you very much. I look forward to our paths crossing in the future and to our listeners, there you have it, a history of the sports wheelchair. Thank you, Sam, for your time and a wonderful discussion. I do hope that everyone has enjoyed listening, please do remember to subscribe. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can email them to admin at is.org.uk. You can also subscribe to these podcasts through your podcast provider. I do hope that we get to see you virtually at our 60th anniversary scientific meeting at the end of September. All the details are in our show notes. Until next time, take care for now and enjoy listening. Thank you all.